Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. November 1734. A winter chill whistles through the royal forest of Epping in Essex. Between the prison of trees, about six or so deer stealers turned housebreakers, led by a local blacksmith, Samuel Gregory, wait silent and strategically spread across the forest floor. Gregory's gang picked their steps carefully as they went. Even the slightest noise could betray them. Gregory had lately been rescued from the pillory by his brothers-in-arms, and he was not, he was resolved, about to be captured again that night. Among his number, as they crept ever closer to the isolated home of the widow Shelley, was one Mr. Richard Turpin. A butcher by trade and native of these parts, Turpin was a savvy addition to this group of petty scoundrels. Then, in an explosion of shattering wood and violent threats, Widow Shelley was, so the story goes, bound and tortured by Gregory, Turpin and the others. They wished to know where she kept her money. Once they had that, they vowed they would leave her be. But Widow Shelley refused to speak. That was, apparently, until the notorious Dick Turpin had a diabolical idea. Turpin instructed his pack of thieves to take the widow, raise her from her seat and carry her across the room, giving instructions that she was to be placed in the large open fireplace above the licking flames. Well, needless to say, the widow Shelley soon offered up the location of her vault, and this set of dishonourable thieves fled with the princely sum of £400, just shy of £50,000 or $65,000 today. In the decades following his eventual death, the ghost of Dick Turpin on horseback was reportedly seen galloping down Traps Hill, Loughton, past the old widow's house in supposed repentance, the spectre of Widow Shelley clawing at his back. But listener, beware. Should you see this terrifying spectral sight on Traps Hill, it is said to foretell the arrival of a catastrophic disaster.
Hello and welcome to After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. I'm Dr. Maddie Pelling. And I'm Dr. Anthony Delaney. And today we're going back in time to the 1730s and the story of Dick Turpin. Anthony, Dick Turpin is one of those characters that looms large in cultural imagination. He's reimagined again and again. He's a hero of the Victorian Gothic. He is someone who's much beloved by the 1980s New Romantics. There's a disconnect, isn't there, between the man, the myth, the legend. I guess we're going to talk about that. But what does he mean to you? It's interesting that you started that by calling him a character. And I think that's very apt because what has happened, as you were describing there, is there are two or actually probably several different Dick Turpins. And what we're trying to do today is get to the bottom of who the real Dick Turpin was and what is this legend, this myth that has grown up around him. And it's, yes, it's very specific to the 1730s, but that grows and grows over the decades and over the centuries that that we have come to know him today. I think as an 18th century historian, I sort of think of him as existing somewhere else in a different realm. Yeah. <laughs> He's sort of not part of the world that I go back to so much and that I write about that I research and I spend a lot of time in. So I'm kind of interested to put him into that context again. The 1730s are quite an interesting time in the 18th century in Britain. Can you give us a little bit of context of what's happening? George II is on the throne, is that right? He is, and his wife, Caroline of Ansbach, is influencing quite significantly with her political links to the first ever Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. We also have the formation of the Society for the Reformation of Manners. Well, that was a couple of centuries previously, actually, but they're really talking about the moral life of England at this time, and they're trying to regulate this, what they see as the disintegration of English society due to loose morals. And that's something that is going to play a part in the story of Dick Turpin, right? That he's the sort of antithesis of this. He's a, a highwayman. He's a criminal. He's someone who exists on the periphery of 18th century society and doesn't conform to these strictures in terms of morality, in terms of how you're meant to behave and specifically how you're meant to present yourself as a gentleman as well, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting what you're t talking about, that idea of a gentleman in the 18th century is because he doesn't meet that mark at all. That inference of gentlemanliness comes later, as we will see. But he, there is nobody in the 18th century who would have mistaken Dick Turpin for a gentleman. So it'll be interesting to see how that myth gets layered on top of him. This is also the time, just looking a little bit more broadly, where Chief Tomochichi has been in Britain and he has been received by George II, who we spoke about at the outset, and he assigned over the area of modern day Savannah, Georgia to the British. So there is, we have this idea of what's going on in the 1730s at home in Britain and then in the wider world and how Britain is interfering in many ways in that wider world at this time. So it's a very tumultuous time. There's lots of shifting, lots of changing going on. But for me, this is one of the, the 1720s, 1730s are where I, I often feel my most comfortable looking at. These are my sweet spots historically. I prefer a later 18th century, it has to be said. But it's important to remember as well, I think, in the 1730s that we're still dealing with the aftermath of the South Sea collapse, which is a bubble of financial speculation around the South Sea Company that ends in financial ruin. It's the first kind of financial collapse in Britain, and it has these, these global effects. And that kind of rocks 
the foundations a little bit, I think, of how people understand Britain and understand themselves in it. So there's there's plenty going on in terms of empire. There's plenty going on uh, in terms of uh, politics. And as you say, Caroline, George II's wife and queen, she is quite a sort of interfering figure in politics. We have the first British prime minister in power. There's a sense, I suppose, of a new world emerging. We've had a little bit of chaos. It's turbulent, but there's there's new light ahead, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, there's definitely this sense of, of people, of individuals, of nations finding their feet. So it's interesting to see how this question of Turpin specifically arises during this time. But Maddie, you spoke about this a little bit earlier, and I, I, I would like to know, when you think of Dick Turpin, what is... What are, what are the thoughts that come to your mind? Paint the picture of who you would experience, who you'd expect Dick Turpin to be when you when you talk about him. Okay, so we know he's a highwayman, amongst other things, I'm guessing, but that's the enduring image of him. I can't see him in my mind without seeing him on horseback. I'm thinking a billowing cloak. I'm thinking some kind of mask, a tricorn hat, very poldark. I'm thinking quite young. I'm thinking a little bit handsome. He is, we've talked about this already, but a sort of cultural figure. He's a character. He's someone who's a little bit risky. I think about, you know, the the catchphrase, your money or your life, which I'm sure you're going to tell me he never uttered those words or never uttered those exact words. We have this sense of him. He has his lines. He has his outfit. He has his costume. He has his trusty horse accompanying him. Are you going to just completely dismantle this to me and tell me none of these things are true? I mean, essentially, essentially, it's it's interesting because that horse becomes part of the lore and, and the horse, some listeners may know, is Black Bess, apparently. And Black Bess was, was who the steed that carried Dick Turpin. But actually, when you start to pick into these things, we'll see that there's a slightly different reality going on in the background. So my question is, when does this shift start why are we handed down this vision of dick turpin as a sort of character Mm, it starts about a hundred years after his foray into the criminal life it starts about a hundred years later in 1834 with the publication of william ainsworth's actually sometimes he goes by harrison ainsworth because his full name is william harrison ainsworth he publishes a novel called rockwood and that laid all of the foundations for what we understand as Dick Turpin today, which is this dashing highwayman, someone who's really gallant and he, he out, he's outwitting out corrupt authorities. There's almost like a Robin Hood element to him. And he's, as you say, this good looking man who's... Yeah, and we're, and we're rooting for him. He's the hero, yeah. right? And all the, all the ladies in the carriages are swooning and handing over their jewels and, and gold coins to him, you know, and that, that image is, is really enjoying. It's interesting to me that it comes from Ainsworth. So I love William Harrison Ainsworth. I don't know if you've ever read any of his novels. He was really prolific. I think he wrote like, I mean, don't quote me on this, but many, like maybe 30 plus historical novels. Yes. He was, he was turning it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he loves, he loves an 18th century criminal. So the other person that he novelizes is Jack Shepard, who's another highwayman and criminal who famously escapes multiple times. I can't remember how many times from Newgate prison, but Ainsworth kind of, you know, takes this and and plays with it. I, I, if you listeners, if you haven't ever picked up an Ainsworth novel, do so. They are great fun. They're beautifully illustrated. And they're, 
sort of a forerunner of Dickens in a lot of ways. I think, I mean, they maybe don't have the literary quality, but they have that sort of immersive world. And he's always, even though he's writing in the 1830s, he's always looking back to the 18th century or, or sometimes even earlier. He writes novels about Lady Jane Grey and the Tower of London and all of that. But there's this, he gives us, I think, that 18th century world that we love to imagine that's populated by highwaymen and pirates. Well, if he does, and he does, then he's obscuring some of the more realistic facts because we are left so profound was his work and so much did he produce that we're left with his version of events which is of course novel which is a novel which is fiction and is not necessarily based on any of the facts so let's look at some of the facts that we have regarding Richard Turpin and that is that he was born in the best month to be born which is September 1705 why, why is that the best month Anthony because I was born in September too not in 1705 mind and he was the fifth of six children so this is a relatively big family his father was named John and his mother was Mary Elizabeth Parmenter now his father had was a publican but had been a butcher and that's the route that Turpin initially took. He, he trained as a, a butcher and he did an apprenticeship and that was the route his life was going to take. And he married in 1725. He married Betty Millington. She was a maidservant. Now, the interesting thing about Betty's status there is it also gives us a link to his status which as a butcher, a butcher actually could have been quite an affluent position, depending on where you are. If you're, especially in London, there's actually quite a good living to be made in some cases. But for the Turpins, it seems that it, by the fact that he's marrying a, a maidservant, it does seem like they are more along the lines of the working poor, that it's living month to month, day to day, week to week sometimes. So you can see that there's a world of poverty in which, Maybe not acute poverty, but poverty nonetheless that's lingering over some of this story in, in the, the first part of his life. What's striking me about what you're saying here, Anthony, is that this is quite a normal start in life. He is not necessarily affluent. He's not living in dire poverty. His father comes from a respectable trade or yeah. two trades, you know, being a butcher and then a publican. I suppose if his father's a publican, he's growing up in a world in which he's seeing lots of different kinds of people pass through that space, pass through the tavern or the inn that his father's running. And I wonder if that has an early effect on him in terms of wishing for more than he has, feeling a pull to go elsewhere, to travel, to get out of that circumstance. And I wonder if when he marries Betty, there's a feeling of being restricted in some way i'm i'm putting this onto him but i i just i wonder from what we know about him we know even with all the mythology stripped away that he is going to his his effect in the world is going to be felt very widely and this feels like quite a small and ordinary start i i agree with you and i disagree with you in that i i love that idea of him growing up in a in, in the pub as being formative i think it would have been i'll come back to that in just a second I'm not convinced that he would have had aspirations beyond Essex had his life panned out any differently other than him being a butcher. I think he would have been relatively content to stay there. I think that waywardness and that travel lust or wanderlust, whatever you want to call it, might be a little bit part of the of the, the romanticization that happens in the 19th century as opposed to what he would have experienced himself in the 1730s. 
That's not to say that he didn't travel because he absolutely did. And we'll get to the, the reasoning behind that in a, in a little while. But something has happened. And I think you're right. I think the, the pub might have been the, the locus for this. Something has happened where he has fallen in with this crowd and Gregory's gang, basically. And it's worth bearing in mind that Turpin's not the leader here. He is just one of the gang. He's not calling the shots. He just goes along with Gregory. Whatever Gregory says goes. Gregory is the leader here. So I think that also starts to unpick some of the Turpin lore straight from the beginning. He's not this leader. He's not this charismatic leader of men. He's just essentially a petty criminal. And in, in the opening, we see that he's going to Widow Shelley's house, who's, you know, a vulnerable older woman who lives in isolation in essentially the countryside. And these are the types of people initially that he's targeting along with Gregory's gang. So this isn't some, you know, moral quest that he's on. He's not stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. He is He's targeting, along with Gregory, as I say, he's targeting specific people who they view to be vulnerable. And I mean, I, I said in the story at the beginning that he took £400 or they took £400 from that specific theft. But there are some accounts that say it was little more than £3. So it's, you know, again, what's part of history and what's part of the folklore. But whether she had three or whether she had £400, they were going to rob her because that's what they were doing. So it's not this huge organized thing. He's not a dreamer. He's not a he's not a dashing figure. He is a criminal. What's also interesting about his targeting of the widow living alone who's vulnerable is that this crime isn't taking place on the road. We think of him primarily as a highwayman. And this is taking place in a domestic space. He's invaded I think as well that, I mean, there's so much brutality in the way that he tries to put her on the fire. He does put her on the fire. It's it's very dark. It's very scary. It's very violent. This isn't the figure that we necessarily know. Tell me some more about the gang that he's part of and how his life with them unfolds and how he becomes this notorious criminal. He finds himself with Gregory's gang, as I say, that's actually relatively short-lived because as soon as they break into Widow Shelley's house, there is a manhunt, essentially, which brings me to the next part of the story. Dick Turpin and his gang were wanted men. Soon, one by one, his accomplices were rounded up and brought to justice for a spate of crimes, including their violence towards and theft of the Widow Shelley. Turpin, however, somehow managed to evade capture. While hiding out in Epping Forest, Turpin then fell in with another man, Thomas Rowden. Together, the pair undertook several rather boring highway robberies, gathering mere guineas for their troubles. In time, Turpin went on to work with the infamous criminal Tom King in a similar line of work, but in early 1737, King was killed as a result of a scuffle over a stolen horse. There are some who claimed that it was Turpin himself who fired the fatal shot. Alone now, Turpin returned to Epping Forest to take cover. He had become so notorious, however, that on the 4th of May he was identified by a servant, Thomas Morris. Morris was feeling particularly heroic on that day in May and wished to claim the £100 reward offered for Turpin's capture, so he tried to apprehend him. 
but Turpin was slippery and once again escaped. Before he ran, however, he made sure to shoot and kill Thomas Morris. It was at this point that Dick Turpin decided to escape to Yorkshire. Once there, he changed his name to John Parman or Palmer, but his penchant for crime went with him. He hadn't been in Yorkshire long when he was taken up for the very daring crime of killing a rooster. Imprisoned now, John Palmer wrote to his brother-in-law asking for help, but in an extraordinary and unclear turn of luck, his writing was recognised as that of none other than the notorious criminal Dick Turpins. His story regarding his alter ego unravelled now and his identity was quickly revealed. It was thus discovered that no longer content with foul alone, Turpin had also recently stolen a horse and a foal belonging to a man named Thomas Creasy. He would be tried for this crime. And so, at the Assizes holding at the Castle of York, John Palmer, alias Palmer, alias Richard Turpin, was indicted for stealing a black mare and a foal at Welton in the county of York. When the judge was readying to pass sentence, the prisoner was asked why a sentence of death should not be pronounced against him. Turpin replied, It is very hard upon me, my lord, because I was not prepared for my defence. Turpin, however, was found guilty and sentenced to hang. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
I love that it was handwriting that caught him out. That he's caught for killing a rooster, imprisoned in York, and that it's the handwriting. I think I'd read somewhere that it was his old teacher yes. back home where his brother lived who saw it and thought, I know that handwriting, whether yeah. that's true or not. I can't believe that's true, but I've re- I read that too. And that's, that, that is part of that, uh, that story. I wonder if that's part of that fanciful myth-making as well. I don't know. But that, that was definitely around in the, in the 18th century. That was certainly contemporaneous. Whether, whether it happened or not is unclear. What is occurring to me as you were speaking then, as you were telling us that part of the story, is just how complicated his capture becomes and the way that his life falls apart and the way that he is caught out. It's so hard to unpick and decipher who did what, how is he actually identified, how is he actually caught. Also, the fact that he's in York is interesting to me, that he begins his life of crime in Essex and ends it in York and we know that one of the big myths about him is to do with Black Bess and that he rides all night from somewhere close to London all the way to York in order to hang out I think it's with the mayor of York or something supposedly and when the next day he's wanted for this crime he says I have an alibi of course I couldn't possibly have uh, have committed this crime I think it's a murder that he's wanted for in London because I was in York and it's impossible to ride from London to York in one night. Whether that's true, I mean, it's, it's very unlikely to actually have well, any Maddie Pelling, basis. <laughs> let's get into some of those facts or, well, supposed facts in a little segment I have decided to call Turpin, True or Tripe. Now, listeners, Maddie has not <laughs> heard cue, cue music for Cheesy Game Show. Maddie has not heard or seen these questions I am going to set up with a question as to whether or not something Turpin has done, apparently, and you need to tell me whether you think that's true or tripe. Now, bear in mind that some of what you might think is tripe is kind of based in truth. So some of these might be a little bit unclear. So play along at home, see if you can figure out which is true and which is tripe. Okay, five questions. First question is this. Dick Turpin made a concerted effort to steal from the rich, true or tripe, Maddie? I've given you a clue about this one. A tribe. That is absolute tribe. He just stole from whoever he wanted to. And one of the reasons we know this is he's stealing chickens. That said, the, the mare and the foal that he steals, that is, the, the, those are, you know, indication of status and wealth. But generally speaking, he's stealing guineas on the road. It's quite, when you think about it, quite pathetic. It's not this accomplished, savvy, charismatic highwayman. It's just a petty criminal. So that one is absolutely tripe. Right, question number two. Oh yeah, this one's interesting. Turpin evaded capture for so long because he hid out in the Netherlands for a period of time. True or tripe? Ooh, I'm going to say tripe. I think he seems like someone who is involved in crime at local levels, very much in England. I can't see him going to the Netherlands. I'm going to say tripe. So there is a period between... 1735 and 1737, where he disappears slightly. And we don't really know what happens. Now, as historians, we know that it's not all that strange for somebody of the working class to disappear from the archive for two years. In fact, that's not that long a span for somebody to disappear from. It was later suggested that there were contemporary reports from the 1730s that he had escaped to the Netherlands. So that's why he was the only member of the gang that had not been caught. 
Now, I, I tend to agree with you, though. I don't think he was in the Netherlands. I don't know where he was. Nobody really seems to. Epping Forest comes up again, again and again. But certainly in the 1730s, it's being reported in the press that he might be in the Netherlands simply because he had become so notorious, even by that point. So he was famous. He was making the news. They were already starting to build. You know, I, I spoke about the, the real myth building starting in the 19th century, but it was already starting in the 1730s. And I think I personally think I agree with you. I think that he why would he have gone to the Netherlands? It doesn't. How would he have gone? I mean, he could have gone. He could have made his way. Of course he could. But it just doesn't ring true. And I, I think you're right about the lo localness being a big factor there. Next question. Question three, I think. Oh, you know the answer to this one, too, because it's been in the story. But let's let's do it anyway. Dick Turpin never killed anyone. He just took their belongings. Tripe. That is tripe. He definitely killed one person because he definitely killed the manservant who tried to take him for the reward. And he possibly killed one of his fellow thieves. Those are those are the one slash two that we're very aware of. There may have been others, but certainly he killed the, the manservant, which again highlights this idea that he is not stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. He is attacking the poor when necessary and he is killing the poor if if he feels he needs to do so to escape. I think you said earlier as well that he potentially killed a fellow gang member yeah, yeah, at yeah. some point. And, you know, thinking of the old parlance, there's no honour amongst thieves. And I, to me, that absolutely rings true, that the life that he's living on the edge of society, and it's it's quite a sort of itinerant life, and he seems to be moving from crime to crime and living hand to mouth, it seems very plausible to me that that would fall apart in an instant and those those alliances that were built in order to survive in that world in order to overpower other people to take advantage to commit those crimes that those those bonds between those particular men are not going to last the test of time or even a little bit of stress yeah he this is i think that's the perfect way to sum it up there is no honor amongst thieves in this particular case and in many cases i suppose but this is a real example of it's every man for themselves they're together when it suits them but he's you know we've heard how he's running between different criminal gangs or different individual criminals and he's scraping this existence together and what we don't know for sure and what what is fascinating is why he turned to crime we would imagine it may have something got to do with poverty but actually was it it, was it just something that he enjoyed? It, was it just something that he felt compelled to do? It's that's unclear in the archive. Okay, second last question, and we're we're getting through our our Turpin quiz. The actual charges of horse theft against Turpin were invalid and just used to hang him for something. So there was the the, the charges were invalid and they were just used to hang him. True or tripe? Oh, now. <sighs> Given the, the centrality of horses to what we know about him and what we think we know about him, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say tripe. I'm gonna say that the the horse theft it has to be part of his story. It has to be. Well, this kind of is true-ish, in that yes, he did steal a horse from Thomas Creasy in Welton on the first of March, 1739. Well, that's what he was charged with, actually. But the crime was actually committed in Heckington in August 1738. So the charges are therefore rendered invalid because the charges are incorrect. You know, I think that speaks as well to the 
complicated sort of essence of his story and the fact that even when he's when he's been imprisoned and then they discover who he is there's so much confusion around how to how to nail him for his crimes and the fact that he's in york when he's committed most of the crimes elsewhere especially in the south it's there seems so much sort of imprecision in getting to who he is what exactly he's done and it's that is fascinating that even when he's being tried for those crimes even when he's being charged with certain offenses that they're not even correct that it's so yeah. difficult to yeah. get to the truth of what he's done. But he had stolen horses. He had stolen horses, absolutely. So there, that's why it's true-ish. But apparently, had he been a little bit more defence-minded, if he had admitted to doing to stealing the horses, okay, there probably would have been another trial, but it certainly might have gotten him off the hook for that specific place because he wasn't in Welton on the 1st of March, 1739. So... There may have been a way out for him there, but he, he wasn't thinking that way. Okay, final one. And this one is one you've alluded to before. Did he, in fact, take the famous ride from London to York on Black Bess, that overnight ride that you spoke of earlier? Um, I do think this is tripe. I want it to be true. I do want it to be true. Now, I think I've read somewhere before that his horse was maybe not even called Black Bess. That's true. That he... I mean, he clearly made the journey to York at some point. Did he do it on one moonlit night, speeding along on Black Bess? No, I'm going to say it's tripe. It is tripe. The legend goes that Turpin undertook this journey from London to York to try and get to York before he was discovered for some of his crimes in London, give himself an alibi, as you had rightly said earlier. That's a trip of some 200 miles, apparently. Apparently, he took that journey on Black Bess, who was his faithful mare. They did that Black Bess didn't exist until the novel, Ainsworth's novel in the 19th century. And apparently he made that journey in less than 15 hours. So that just could not physically have happened. Apparently it would have taken, you'd need to be changing horse every 10 miles to achieve that. And he just didn't do that. Obviously he wouldn't have had access to that many horses. And it's just, it just would have been physically impossible to do it during that time. But what I find particularly fascinating about that and the legend that surrounds that is there are so many inns and pubs, even now today on the route that he supposedly took that say, well, this is where Dick Turpin stopped on his midnight journey to wherever he was to York. And he stopped here for this. If he had stopped in all of those inns, somebody has written it would have taken two days or something, let alone 12 hours for him to get to where he's going. So basically that very famous story is no more than that. Just a story. That is one great pub crawl, though. We that that, that is a, a particularly <laughs> interesting pub, pub crawl, yeah. But no, it's it's so interesting that none of this is true, essentially. None of what we know of him is true. The other thing to say here, and this isn't necessarily connected to the sort of the sexy mythology around him, but just that this his history gives us so much insight into travel in the 18th century. You know, uh -huh. we think this is the era of the new turnpike roads where local communities, local authorities would raise money to maintain their portion of the road. And often, I think there's a uh, there was a, a town on the London to Bath Road that was notorious because they had all fallen out in the town and no one would agree to pay for the maintenance of the road. And so if you're passing through, your carriage would be going along, you know, a relatively well-maintained smooth road and suddenly you'd go through this town and it would be a nightmare and people's carriage wheels were falling off and it was, you know, a real disaster. But you get this kind of, this new network of roads and the country is connected in a new way. And I wonder if that, 
mythology around him racing up to York, if that isn't part of this broader idea of the roads connecting places like never before and bringing with it, I suppose, an anxiety that people who are doing bad things in one place could escape to somewhere else and get away with it. And obviously in Turpin's case, he doesn't get away with it. But I just wonder if that is part of that idea. And also love the idea that normally you'd have to change your horse multiple times in order to get to York. And Black Bess becomes this sort of super, not superhuman, super animal <laughs> who is as much a myth as as Turpin himself and that she's this kind of yeah mythological beast that takes him all around committing crimes. Yeah, it's it's also really interesting if you consider what an actual highwayman would have had to do to commit some of these crimes. A horse is really necessary. And roads, as you have said, those two factors are present in some way in Turpin's story. Although there is a theory that he got to York by ferry, which is an interesting one. It's, it's not as exciting. It's not as exciting, just a placid ferry journey up <laughs> to, to York. It's interesting because the, the, the highwayman would have had to be aware of these roads and particularly some of these bad roads that you're talking about where carriages would have had to slow down. They would have had to know who was travelling at what time. That's why these certain towns are uh, an interesting port of call for highwaymen because they're hearing who's travelling and when and who's travelling together. And often they would have had more than one of them on horseback. So somebody would have come out in front of the horse-drawn carriage, stopped them in their in their tracks, and then another highwayman would have gone to the to the window of the carriage and demanded the takings. There could have other be, been other people as well who were stationed behind the carriage and who were circling around. So you're talking about gangs of highwaymen here, actually, in reality, more than you're talking about this lone individual, because actually the practicalities of doing it wouldn't really have allowed one person to do it on their own. And Turpin has some of the ingredients. He has the horse, even if it's not Black Bess. He has this mythology surrounding the roads but what we're seeing is that he's taking guineas from people who are just passing on country road essentially country roads in Essex rather than this kind of triumphant daring do personality that we've come to know in the 19th century I'd be interested to know why you think you're you're good with this kind of thing usually actually you'd be interested to know what you think why in 1830 was it necessary for Ainsworth or whoever else to romanticise this figure of the, the high women, particularly Dick Turpin. Well, there's a, there's a huge interest in that period in looking back to the 18th century and in particular looking back to the turbulence of it. So the Gordon riots in 1780 get sort of romanticised and we see them appear, I think it's in Barnaby Rudge, Dickens' novel, and indeed Jane Austen mentions them. They appear in multiple writers of, of that period in, the, in their works. I imagine... I mean, Ainsworth looks back at all kinds of historical figures, but he is particularly drawn to men in the 18th century who are ripe for romanticization, who behave badly in some way. So that's that's kind of my that's how I imagine he's attracted to to Turpin. And it's interesting to me that Turpin has all these afterlives and all these reinventions because he meets quite a human and grim end, doesn't he? He does. It's kind of his last, his last final adventure. So let's, let's hear a little bit about that. Now, the following account comes straight to us from the 18th century and is retold here word for word as its intended Georgian audience would have read or heard it. 
The morning before Turpin's execution, he gave £3.10 shillings amongst five men who were to follow the cart as mourners, with hatbands and gloves, and gave gloves and hatbands to several persons more. He also left a gold ring and two pair of shoes and clogs to a married woman at Broth that he was acquainted with, though he at the same time acknowledged he had a wife and child of his own. He was carried in a cart to the place of execution on Saturday, April 7th, 1739, with John Stead, condemned also for horse-stealing. He behaved himself with amazing assurance and bowed to the spectators as he passed. It was remarkable that as he mounted the ladder, his right leg trembled, on which he stamped it down with undaunted courage, looked round about him, and after speaking near half an hour with the topsman, threw himself off the ladder and expired in about five minutes. His corpse was brought back from the gallows about three in the afternoon and lodged at the Blue Boar in Castlegate till ten the next morning, when it was buried in a neat coffin in St. George's Churchyard, without Fishergate postern, with this inscription, J.P. 1739, R.T., aged 28. The grave was dug very deep, and the persons whom he appointed his mourners, as above mentioned, took all possible care to secure the body, notwithstanding which, on Tuesday morning about three o'clock, some persons were discovered to be moving off the body which they had taken up. The mob, having got sent where it was carried to and suspecting it was to be anatomised, went to a garden in which it was deposited and brought away the body through the streets of the city, in a sort of triumph, almost naked, being only laid on a board covered with some straw and carried it on four men's shoulders and buried it in the same grave, having first filled the coffin with slacked lime. So... The lime presumably is to hasten the decomposition of the body. Yeah, is so, that right? Yeah, to make it just not worth stealing, basically. Okay, so that's that is interesting to me because that tells me that he is someone whose body might be worth stealing. Is that because he's famous? Is it because he's a criminal? He's been executed as a criminal. Is this something they're particularly worried about when it comes to Dick Turpin? There's two things to explore here, I think. The first being that he was financially able to try to guarantee that he wouldn't be, his body wouldn't be exhumed or wouldn't be taken in straight away to be anatomized because that was very often what happened to criminals unless they could pay the fee to the hangman or to the authorities to say, no, look, that I, I want to be buried. The second point to make here is we do see this strange worship almost of Turpin. This is from a, a source in 1739. So this is happening straight after his death. And it's telling us that he's being exalted amongst some of these people, that they're carrying him triumphantly. They use that they use the word triumph through the streets. And it does say that there's something happening in the contemporary mindset where they're saying, actually this man went against authority and he and we're we're with him because of that and there's this folk hero status that's already coming in straight after the gallows now that's not that unusual as you and i know often on the gallows people do take on this i don't know it's almost imbued with some bravery or some heroism and the fact that apparently he hangs himself he takes the leap he doesn't need to be shoved off a cart or so he usually a hangman would have moved a cart and he would have dropped. But in this account, it's telling us that he made that leap himself. See, the other person in history that we know who does that is Guy Fawkes. And I'm not saying that 
Guy Fawkes didn't do that or that Dick Turpin didn't do that. But I wonder if that feeds into this narrative of him being a kind of folk hero and that he's daring to the last. Um, for anyone who's ever been to York, you can, of course, go in the the York Castle dungeons, the, the, the old prison cells that he would have most likely have been kept in when he was awaiting his execution. There's also his grave in York. But, Anthony... <laughs> Truth or trite, <laughs> is it? No, is you're it his using my grave? game show against me, Maddie. <laughs> is it his grave? Possibly, probably not. Certainly the, the marker is much, much later. But there is a wonderful historian, Professor James Sharp, who has done some research into this and thinks that it's very, very unlikely that the grave visible today is the actual point where Turpin is buried just because, and this is so, sometimes we overlook the, the most straightforward details when we're looking at these histories. It's very unlikely that a, conv- uh, that a convicted felon would have been buried in a marked grave. So they wouldn't necessarily know, especially because they were trying to keep his body under the ground because people were, were trying to take it. It's very, very unlikely that it actually would have been marked in a way that was able to remain so for hundreds of years afterwards. So it looks to me like, and it feels to me like that that particular spot isn't the spot, even if it's in the vicinity and even if it's because often, you know, convicted felons were buried in mass graves or sometimes they they found spots near consecrated grounds. So maybe he's in and around there. But yeah, it's it's unlikely. I haven't been down there, obviously. I haven't tried to dig him up. I don't know. But it, it feels <laughs> to me that that would that seems unlikely. I think that ambiguity when it comes to getting to the heart of who Dick Turpin is and where he is now. I think that's a perfect place to end this episode. I would love to think that he is buried there and I've been to that gravesite multiple times actually. Tell us tell us as why a, you were as a student. Tell us why you were there, Maddie. And if this doesn't sum up why Maddie is one of the co-hosts on After Dark, nothing does. <laughs> so listeners, before we started recording, I did admit to Anthony and producer Stoop that we I did take my now husband to Dick Turpin's grave on one of our very first dates. That wasn't the main activity of the day. I don't know, it's the only one you've told me about. (laughs) But yeah, we were both students in York. We had to walk by it to get to the restaurant we were going to. So we did did stop by. And I think, yeah, he's signed up for a life of standing by historic gravestones ever since. So... Yes, that that's that. But if you are in York, listeners, do do go and go to the grave. It's whether Dick Turpin really is there or not. I think it's it's a really tangible piece of York's history, and it's well worth it's well worth a visit. Thank you very much for listening to After Dark Myths, Misdeeds, and the Paranormal. You can follow us along wherever you get your podcasts, as you presumably know if you're listening to us. Please do leave us a review. We love to hear that you're enjoying the show. But more than this, it helps other people discover us. So please, please go and do that if you've enjoyed today's episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe and as a special gift now don't say we never give you anything you can also get your first three months for one pound a month when you use the code after dark at checkout